Welcome to the Judging More Than Just the Cover podcast. I'm Amber Gregg. I'm Kate Oda. And I'm James Moore. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. It's a new release. It came out in 2019. It takes place in the late 60s and is technically classified as a historical fiction. We picked this book because it was on Reese's book club list and it was also part of the book of the month club and it's been getting lots of publicity lately. Even though it was just released, it's been all over the place. So this book follows a band, the six. It starts off as a six and eventually adopts Daisy Jones. And before we started recording, we started to talk about how we all thought that this was a real band. Yeah, I even uh, I tried to look them up on YouTube to listen to some music and then got very angry when I couldn't <laughs> find anything. I had the exact same experience. They're talking about these great hits that they had. I was, Man, this sounds like this would be good. And I'm looking it up on YouTube and getting disappointed. And one of the I didn't figure it out until I started looking for that album cover that they described. Oh, really? And I was like, oh, well, there's got to be an image of the album cover. And then it's not there. <laughs> So. And it really was the author's note at the beginning of the story that threw me off because it sets it up as it's the actual author writing the note, but then we realized later that the author is one of the characters, but it led me to believe like, oh, okay, this is like a fictionalized mm-hmm. story about a real band. And so I did the same thing. I Googled them and I was like, what is, is this just like a no name band? And we're getting the behind the scenes story. So that was Actually, a really cool component of the story is that it led you to believe that. And it is going to be made into either a movie or a miniseries. Did you see that? I researched the the fact that it's going to be a miniseries. I think Netflix is working on it, if I'm not mistaken. That sounds familiar? Yes. I don't know if it's that or it's a channel, because I know that Reese Witherspoon is actually... She's the one behind, behind it. it. She's the driving force. So maybe we'll actually get those songs. Because we got all the lyrics. Right. That's <laughs> what I was thinking. Yeah. That they would have to at least make parts of the songs to be a part of the movie. And then we would get to see things like the photo shoot and like those kinds of things. Which this is like the perfect book to be made into a movie. I mean, all the pieces are there. They have the script already. They could literally just take the exact words from the book and just make it into a movie. Yeah. I mean, they could do it like mockumentary style, you know, have the little confession and then the scene happening. I I hope they don't go with that because that that would be, for me, a little bit disappointing than the actual action because I don't want it to look like I'm watching Big Brother. Okay? Yeah. And so you get somebody in the booth and they're talking about what's going on. In fact... I thought when I initially read and saw the format of the book, I said, oh, man, this is going to be like hoeing a row of beans. This is going to be a a job reading this because it's going to be, you know, reading in the interview. But I quickly got into it as a story. I was surprised as to how easily that happened for me. I I was thinking it would be more like I, Tanya. Have you guys seen that movie? No. Uh, They're interviewing all the characters way afterwards. But then they'll go to scenes. Oh, I did see that with the Tanya Harding. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I pictured it as the like VH1 behind the music TV show, uh-huh. which is exactly like what they're doing. Where like I would picture in the actual movie or TV show, where they would have the people speaking after the fact, just how the book is set up, and then 
we would get kind of like the reenactment in like the little scenes. It's also kind of like Roanoke from American Horror Story, if you saw that that season. But that was set up the same way where they had people talking about their experience and then they had actors playing them in the reenactment. So that's kind of what I pictured too. So let's talk about that format. So did you feel like you were missing out on things? Because we really didn't get a lot of scenes We just got people telling us about things that were happening. But then there were some longer descriptions. And did you feel like that was not realistic that they could remember that many details about a specific event? Yeah, when when they started using like quotes of things from people that weren't, you know, an iconic quote, that's when I was like, this is definitely not a real person recounting a real event. This is so that we have the semblance of a scene. Because it is a hard format to choose, but I, I liked having the unreliability of every narrator. Yeah, I especially like the fact that on a lot of points of fact, different points of view, remember they remember things different ways, which was accurate for somebody doing an interview of different people. How did this happen and who said this and who said that? I was pleasantly surprised about how I did not miss actual scenes and real dialogue, because there was some dialogue back and forth kind of described in there, but not real dialogue. But And I was surprised at how I didn't miss that. It was almost like watching a magic trick. You say, I still want to read the rest of this book, but there's no like real, you know, intent dialogue going on. It is very encouraging for me because I'm writing a story that's in letters and there's not real scenes like that. So it's cool to see someone do it successfully because I felt like it helped move the book really fast. It was a really quick read. And yeah, I didn't feel like I was missing anything. At some points it did get kind of annoying because it was very like initial pronoun heavy because they were talking about themselves so it was just a lot of I did this and I did this and I said this back and forth and in my brain there were so many different characters and even just so many people in this band there were seven people in the band that I kind of skipped over the character's name as I was reading did you guys start to do that no I I heavily relied on who was talking because I was hunting for Pete. He never had a perspective. And I was like, where are you, Pete? Where are you? I thought he was dead. I thought he was dead too. He had that one thing at the end where it was like, please don't use me in this or whatever. Right. He's like, you can use this one comment, but I've moved on, which actually I found really interesting that he did that because I think that was very realistic that out of seven people, there had to be at least one that would straight up not want to be a part of a documentary that part of their life is over he never really was that interested in the band anyway. There's always going to be a Tito Jackson, okay? <laughs> when you when you do an interview like this and you get a band together, there's always like a, hey, I just want to be a normal guy. I don't want anybody to remember me at the fish market. I just want to be able to buy my stuff and go. And I think that's who Pete was. I found myself, as I was reading, and saying, who, who is saying this again? And having to go back and you know remember who is talking. Um, every once in a while, I had to do that. And I would kind of get into more of what was going on than who was saying it. And I would <laughs> I would get confused at one point and say, no, they wouldn't really, Billy wouldn't say that. Oh, it's not Billy. It's somebody else. So Yeah, I didn't feel like their voices were different, differentiated enough. I felt like Warren actually had the biggest difference in the way that he talked because he was kind of funny. He had like 
a dry humor to him. So I felt like I could always tell when he was talking. But some of the other characters, they all kind of blended together, like the other bandmates. I could very clearly tell, like, okay, this is Daisy, this is Billy, because they were the most important ones, and I really paid attention to them. But really, the rest of the band members, I just kind of, like, read them all as one character in my brain. Really? Yeah. I loved Karen. Karen stood out to me so much, because I... I was like, oh, they're going to make Karen not like Daisy because girls can't be friends. And then Karen was like, Daisy's cool. I like this. I was like, yes, Karen. And then every time she had a section, I was like, yes, Karen. Yeah, Yeah, Karen, Karen, right? (laughs) She had the double name. I did really like her, too. And I liked that she kind of had her own ideas about women and music. And, yeah, I liked that she's like, well, it's about me and my music, so I'm going to just wear these plain clothes so it's not about me it's it's about my music and I thought that was that was kind of a powerful statement and like when we're talking about feminism and and how that can be represented you can have two very divergent ideas of feminism like Daisy was very much a feminist in the way that she did whatever she wanted. She didn't care what other people thought about her. She was sexually free, like all these things. Whereas Karen was the opposite in a lot of ways, but they both were doing things authentically themselves. And they're both pretty badass women, I think. I got, I grew to dislike Karen because of what she did to, was it Graham? And she was, yeah. she, she was awful to Graham. And she was warned off of him initially saying, if you're not serious, you need to break this off. And she did not. Yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that. She was pretty awful to him. But I think part of that, partly, Graham thought that it was more than it was anyway. Well, it wasn't partly. That that was the truth. I mean, he was he was into it from the beginning, saying, this is something permanent. I want what my brother has. I want this whole wife and family thing. And this is the one to do it. Now, if you're in that deep... You need to know, okay, there's a shark in the pool somewhere. And it ended up being Karen herself, and um, she should have broken it off. Yeah, or, or communicated. At least communicated, hey, we're just having a good time. If you're, you know, let's just do that. Yeah. And see if he's okay to go along with that. Yeah, that's true. Their relationship was, was not terribly healthy. But Graham also could have done things to communicate better. Yeah, and I do think that to put some of the onus on Graham, I think that there was a point where he realized, you know, she's not digging this as much as I am, but he kept on anyway, hoping to change her mind because we know that always works in the movies Mm -hmm. and the books. (laughs) You fall in love with somebody and you can change them. Since we're on the topic of their relationship, I think it's very interesting the parallels between that and what we talked about in the Alice Network with you know, birth control and abortion. So she ended up deciding to get an abortion. And she talks about how, you know, she has a conversation with Warren and she's like, well, would you, would you quit the band? Would you quit music to raise a child? And I think that was hopefully eye opening for him, like the, the different mindsets about men and women and, and the responsibility of having a child. So I can see where, where she was coming from in in that aspect of it. She didn't see herself like uh, Camilla, where she just wants to make her children her her whole life. Yeah. I mean, once again, a woman trapped in her time period with no great options, (laughs) 
But I, I really liked that Camilla was supporting her and like held her hand the whole time. That whole girl power thing that Karen emanated was then brought around back to her too. And I, I really liked the female friendships in this book a lot because Daisy also had a female friend that also experienced success and they were all just so supportive of each other. So happy. <laughs> yeah, I think Cam- Camilla actually says it in the line of the book. She says, everybody's good at something. I'm good at, at motherhood. And she did that not just for her kids, but for everybody. She looked after everyone in exactly the right way. Everybody needed to be looked after. The advice that she gave people, if they had followed it, it would be a really boring book. <laughs> it would have it worked out good for everybody. And we would be panning this book saying nothing ever happened. It was just dull. But uh, that was her job was to hold, hold Karen's hand through that whole process and take care of everybody. So I feel like just based on what you're saying that you really enjoyed her as a character. Am I right? Camilla? Yeah. I loved Camilla. Oh, I hated her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I can't. I can't put my finger on it, but she just bugged me. I'm like, you're an idiot. Why are you staying with Billy? He is like cheating on you. Like I, I know she had her reasons, but ever after that, I'm like, you are naive. You are stupid. Why are you putting up with this? She's like, I trust him. And ultimately he ended up not cheating on her again, but I'm like, what what do you think? We have a tiebreaker here. I want to state my case first for Camilla. Okay. The reason why I like Camilla was the wisest person in the entire book. Well, she was sober. (laughs) She she was the soberest person. You know, Billy was, he had his sober moments, but she was the wisest person. She took care of everybody. I liked her because of that. And she had faith. She had incredible faith in how things would work out and how people, you know, being able to see people's destinies. Because she saw the destiny of her and Billy having a life together. She she also saw the possible destruction destiny of Daisy and Billy and warned Daisy off for that. But still loving Daisy in the way she's doing it. It wasn't the cat fight, stay away from my husband thing. It was the wisdom, I want what's best for you and I want what's best for my husband. And that means that you have to go. That whole scene right there cemented my, you know, appreciation for Camilla. And I just, I just love her as a character. I know, it's, I know she that's goody goody, but um, that's how I feel. So you be the tiebreaker. Maybe this will be a thing we do in every podcast. Two people pitch <laughs> their very strong opinions <laughs> to the other person. <laughs> Initially, I was, I was against Camilla because, like, she walked in on her husband getting a blowjob from another woman. I would have gone over to that girl and like hit the top and bottom of her head at the same time. <laughs> So she would just bite down. <laughs> okay. You've thought this through. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but, you know, once she decided to stay with him and committed to it, I was like, let's see where this goes. And she, from that point on, I think that part of her faith in him forced him to be the guy that she was making in her mind. She was like, you're going to be this guy or you're just not going to be anything. And so then he was that guy because he didn't have another option. Is that the healthiest relationship? No. No. Is that what I want from my relationship? No. Peter, husband, be warned. But (laughs) (laughs) I agree that she had wisdom for other members of the band. I don't think she was telling Daisy to buzz off for Daisy's own good. Oh, yeah. But it was the advice that Daisy needed. (laughs) She was not in a healthy place. 
and needed to get out of there. But I don't think Camilla did it for purely saintly reasons. So well, what does that mean? So Who the, wins? <laughs> the, the verdict is that I'm slightly more with Amber than I am with you, but I see the points that you're making, and they are valid in certain scenes. We also have to take into consideration... The narrator, the person who is forming the story is her daughter. So she is, I know that we're hearing people's words. However, there could be some bias there in what she's including or not including and how she's portraying her. And Camilla also gets voice, even though she's passed by the end. In the beginning, she gets her own, she gets a way to defend herself. And she gets a lot of opportunities to defend her actions. And she does take advantage of that, I think. And then we also have Billy, who's just like, I felt like he was nuts. Like, I'm like, I don't, I didn't understand the relationship at all. It didn't feel to me like he loved her. I felt like he stayed with her because it was the right thing to do. And I felt like him and Daisy could have had this like amazing relationship. And I don't think that he should have cheated on his wife. I'm not saying that. I don't think that he should have cheated on her with Daisy. I'm glad that he didn't do that. But the fact that, like, at the very end, Camilla was like, you should go write a song with Daisy. I'm like, bitch. Like, (laughs) they could have been happy together their whole lives, but he suffered with you, and then you die, and you're like, go hang out with Daisy. You know what this reminded me of? The series finale of How I Met Your Mother, where it was like, you know, all about how Ted found the mother of the children and was like so in love with her. And in the end, she dies. And then he's basically like, kids, can I go bang Robin? Thank you. Have a nice day. (laughs) Like, that was the series finale. And that's how I felt this book kind of was. This is our first fight on the podcast because I disagree with you on on Billy's love for for Camellia because I think he truly actually loved her as a person and loved his kids. But like so many people out there capable of making mistakes, he he did see Daisy as the dangerous soulmate that she was because... If they, if he hadn't met Camellia, if he just met Daisy initially, they would have gotten together, they would have killed each other, and they would have oh, died yeah. in each other's arms. That's how it would have went. Mm-hmm. And not in the nice Romeo and Juliet way. It would have been horrible, War of the Roses destruction type deal. So that's what he was able to dodge by staying sober and be able to capture what he really wanted in the family. I don't think he suffered this whole marriage. I think he was, <laughs> I think he was very happy. In fact, I was a little disappointed in the ending when she says, oh, you know, give your dad some time and then hook up with this this evil soulmate. Not evil because, you know, she's straightened out and everything, but she was just his mistake. She was his mistake waiting to happen. It almost happened in the book, you yeah. know. Okay, I'll give you that. I think that Billy and Daisy, like, Billy even knew. He knew that if he had been with Daisy, he would have gone back to drugs. He would have done these things and... Daisy did clean up her life after all this. And if they had gotten together, I don't think she would have done it. Like, they wouldn't have done it for each other. So I think that their paths were better off in that way. But, (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I can't put my finger on why Camilla just rose me the wrong way. Just, I did feel like she was trying to be, like, 
that holier than thou person that, okay, yes, they're all in a rock band and they're all sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And she's like, I'm raising a family here and I am, you know, clean. And I don't know. I just, their relationship didn't feel authentic to Did me. Did she come across as insincere to you? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And you know what? It seemed I'm, fake. I'm going to concede that initially, you know, especially after the story on how they got together, he got the record contract and he calls her, and that was a that was a there was a lot of syrup there. I give you that, and it was a little bit too perfect. I give you that, but as she developed throughout the book, and and I saw her in that mother and everybody role, and having that wisdom and everything, I grew to like her. So I mean, we we've already talked about how the the author was Billy and Camilla's daughter. Mm-hmm. So not only was it tinted by the daughter seeing her parents, but the parents are confessing this to their daughter. Are they yeah. going to tell her all their dirty laundry? No. But they kind of I think when did. you go into the blowjob thing. Uh, that's true. Yeah. Who, who was it Camilla or Billy that told that story? Because I would be tomato red. Actually, I think... <laughs> was it one? I think it was one of the bandmates oh, that told God. the story. He's the one that said it exactly. I mean, he, right. he went into the, the actual details. details. He, there's no other way to say it. You know, this was happening. But you know that she was sitting in front of her father discussing this subject about what was happening. Right, he he confirmed it, mm-hmm. but I don't think he said it so bluntly. Yeah. But I was thinking that as soon as I heard that it was the daughter, I'm like, ooh. Like, they talked about a lot of stuff. They like, did. all of them, like, would they really confess this? I mean, granted, she was a grown adult by this point. They're like, yeah, whatever. Like, if you want the true story, we're going to tell you the true story. But, like, one of the band members, I think it was Eddie called Billy an asshole, like, talked about how much he hated Billy. Like, mm-hmm. you're saying that to his daughter? Really? Yeah. That that seemed a little, well, a little weird. Well, I gotta tell you, it's, those, the personalities, I mean, I didn't grow up in the 60s. I was born in the 60s, but there's a lot in that culture, especially if you've done something like a band or whatever. I mean, things are spoken frankly. I mean, there's a lot of upfront stuff that's, that's not hidden. They don't have, have anybody hiding behind the curtain. So I can kind of believe that part of it. But I just wanted to say, Mom, if you're listening to this podcast, don't ever tell me any of these little details that you might have hidden in your closet because the top of my head will come off. (laughs) I couldn't be that author that's interviewing these people hearing about a lot of these details. And it's so raw. That's what I thought was kind of a mind blower when I found out at the end that it's their daughter doing this interview. I thought it was a cool way to reveal why every narrator was slightly unreliable. Because there were points when, you know, Warren would say something, Billy would say the opposite, Daisy would say something else about (laughs) one specific event. And now it's revealed who they're talking to. And it's like, oh, well, now we know that Billy's just trying to look good in front of his daughter, but Daisy was probably being honest because it wasn't about See, I was wondering because I noticed that Billy conflicted with everybody else more than anybody else. Like, he was always kind of slightly off from what other people were saying. The scene that stuck out the most to me was the pool scene where they go to get Daisy. She didn't show up for the recording, and he went with their manager. And the manager and him, like, one of them said that Billy left on his own. The other guy said something different. And I thought maybe when I was reading it that Billy had relapsed and was like doing drugs again so he wasn't remembering correctly but then later i realized no he was the only one that was sober through all this everyone else 
was doing drugs. So maybe his story is the one we can trust the most because he's the only one that would remember it clearly and not in a haze. Like, Daisy, I feel like, how can we even trust anything that she said? She was high out of her mind the entire time. Oh. Well, (laughs) I think just like any eyewitness account, you know, the the middle ground is where you actually find the truth, no matter if somebody was high or not. Because I think... The source of unreliability with Billy, for the most part, was his ego. You And you have a super inflated ego when you think you're that talented and you actually are kind of that talented, but you don't think anybody else around you should have any say in anything. And any time that you give somebody a say, it's because you're being such a great guy. That's what I got from Billy. So when he gives an account of how recording sessions went, and that sort of thing, I'm like, you know, there's a lot of ego in there. So that might not be 100% accurate. And that was reflected when later on when you hear interviews with the other band members. So there's always some source of unreliability. Well, and it's, what, 40 years later that they're doing these interviews. I'm sure some details are hazy. Maybe even as they've matured, they reflect on things differently. They don't have as much anger and resentment i think maybe eddie still has some eddie resentment i think i've been calling him eric (laughs) (laughs) my bad everybody (laughs) eddie at some there was one point in the book where with eddie billy could not do anything right even when billy was doing stuff right eddie was like that that jerk that asshole he was doing that thing right just because he wanted to be right so billy could never win with him ever that's true but to be fair it sounded like Eddie was left out of literally everything. He'd be like, oh, I found out after the fact that Daisy was in the band or like all these things kept happening. And he found out like after they had already decided and he's like, oh, I didn't even know we were considering this. Okay, thanks, guys. But do you think that's just inevitable when you have seven people in a band? Like that just seems outrageous to me that you yeah. have that many people trying to come on the same page with something. I couldn't even figure out what instrument everybody played, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) (laughs) I think that um, it doesn't necessarily happen that in a group of seven band members, you're going to get that one guy that's always on the outside looking. But it's realistic that that could happen. You got that one guy who's not getting the respect that he should because the one or two people that, you know, maybe play the same instrument, just a little bit more talented than you. So you get zero say. Instead of some say, even in what he plays himself. Because he he freaked out when they re-engineered his guitar. (laughs) In a band, though, it is about the lead singer. They're the face of the band. Like, they, I think they said at one point, you could have, like, a guitar player replaced for a concert or whatever. And people probably won't notice. I can say that in a band. But if you're talking about a band on the level that they're talking to, that band took over the world with the album that they put out at one point. And when you look at the Stones, the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, those bands, just about everybody wrote at least one hit in those bands. Other people had saying creative license in those great bands. And when you have just the, the one front guy or maybe two front guys, you can be a really good band and you can have number one album, stuff like that. But you don't have a sustainable, I remember where I was when this album came out type of band. I actually saw something about the Beatles online today 
where like Ringo, the, the drummer, drummer. Mm-hmm. he had to get some sort of tonsil surgery or something pretty minor, but like still you're taken out. So they replaced him for 10 concerts with this random guy. Uh, and he got to be a beetle for like, you know, <laughs> a couple weeks and then he just disappeared again. But could they have done that with whichever beetle was singing? <laughs> that, that so many people are going to hate me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think to your point about one person being on the outs, I think that Pete was actually on the outs too. It was Pete and Eddie were kind of the two that were left out. But Pete didn't care. Yeah, He's like, whatever. Like, why do you care, Eddie? Like, this isn't important. He kept saying that. He's like in the grand scheme of things this isn't important this isn't my life you know karen was involved in some decisions graham was billy's brother so he was kind of let in on some things but really it was just billy and daisy that had the say in in everything everyone else was just kind of the instruments yeah and that was the that was by design by their manager because he knew talent and could recognize it you know Pete was on the outs on purpose he didn't care. Warren acted like he was on the outs. He he was he he was just the horn dog, the the <laughs> book, and 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 it was um it was Eddie though that was on the outs, but not by choice. You know who are you left with? People that are either solely one hundred percent in the the chosen two, or you you have the privilege of being part of the band. So one thing you mentioned was that they took the world by storm, and that was. I would say my biggest issue with the book is that it felt like too short of a time. I know they kind of had a buildup before Daisy entered, but once Daisy entered, it really wasn't that long of a time. It was, I want to say, maybe a year. And I understand that a band can really, like, take off, but I, I don't know if that's really... I didn't feel like that was a long enough time for, like, how, like, popular... Like, popular enough to get this, like, behind-the-music type of, like, documentary. And I know that it was the daughter doing it, so maybe no one else would care at that point about the band. But they broke up pretty quickly, I felt like. I mean, it's kind of like slightly more than a one-hit wonder, where they have a song on the radio and everyone's talking about them, and then they just disappear. And you're like, where did they come from? Where did they go? (laughs) Like, it's just the one song. Or in their case, like, maybe album and a half that people connected with. I believed it. I believed it also because... Of the circumstances of the story, there was two factors in, in what really broke them up. Number one was internal social and human dynamics. You know, people doing this to each other, people doing that to each other. You can't stay together because this just can't happen, especially going on tour. And number two, that one album that they got together and put and you know put out there on the charts, what do you do after that? What do you do after the greatest album of all? Everything else is going to look weak <laughs> after you're done with that. And you're not going to be able to put it together because you got people already despising each other, you know, in the studio. You're never going to get that again. That goose is done and move on. Especially when their manager died, I said, oh, well, this is it. (laughs) They're never going to do anything else together again. And that's where I feel like that solidifies my point about how it's really the singers that matter And I'm sorry for anyone listening that's in a band that's not a lead singer, but Daisy Jones and Billy could go off and do a duo. And I understand why that couldn't happen in the story because of Camilla and all that, but but they could go off and just be on their own, do their own album. They could have literally Joe Schmo, whoever, come join the band because they didn't really have much of a creative thing. And they did say that 
them having some freedom impacted some of the songs and how, and how they ended up. But but really, that's what they were doing, and they could have gone off well, and done that. I think because of the nature of the story, we might have been led to believe that the other band members did not contribute as much as they did. Because Karen on the keyboards, I'm sure, contributed in ways that were not basically voiced by Daisy and Billy. And the same thing with you know, whoever's on bass guitar, whoever's on drums, that that sort of thing. They could have gotten Joe Schmo, I'm sure, but they would not have had any level of success near to what they did with the people that they had, I think. Although they would have still had success, it wouldn't be at the level that they would even want or be it would be used to because when you get right down to it, Billy and Daisy, when it came to their music and how it was done and the expression that they were perfectionists yeah. and they, w- they wouldn't have been happy with anything else. Yeah, I could see them being solo artists who used whatever instrument players were available for whatever song they wrote. Because if you think about it, like modern song singer songwriters, the first one that comes to mind is Taylor Swift. She'll write a song. She doesn't have, you know, it's not Taylor Swift and the band of blah, blah, blah. But there's definitely a band that has to offer up the music for her to sing to. I feel like the singers could have gone on and done that and still have been famous. And the instrumentalists in the band could have gone on to do other instrumental things, but they would not have been the, the lead. Like, no one goes to a piano keyboard concert unless it's their kid, you know? Let's tell that to Billy Joel or Elton John. But I think, they sing. Yeah, yeah, they sing too. Well, they, I think the main thing is that they song write. They actually write the songs. And they that puts you in charge of what's expressed. So I am not an auditory person. I read the songs and it didn't mean anything to me. <laughs> like I I cannot imagine in my head what the actual songs sounded like, which I have to say that it's very impressive that this author wrote all of these songs too. I don't know if she had help or not, but to be able to write songs is very, very impressive. Could you like formulate what the song sounded like in your heads? Without the harmony or knowing the tunes, then no, you just got the lyrics and basically you're reading poetry at that time. Right. And I must admit that I skipped a lot of that because I just could not hang in there that long for it. How many songs were there? A lot. Yeah, I didn't read all of them. It was more than 10. Yeah, it was a full album of songs. Yeah. I was trying to make them fit songs, honestly, journey songs, because I don't know <laughs> 70s and 60s bands. So I was trying to be like, you know, making it to like, <laughs> don't stop believing and it wasn't working. <laughs> I was researching this book and I found a couple interesting comparisons. So what I've seen compared the most is Fleetwood Mac. Are you familiar? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you familiar with the backstory of the relationship between Stevie Nicks and... Uh, what's his name? <laughs> Great yeah. research. <laughs> <laughs> A Mr. plus. Mac. A plus for Amber. The <laughs> Mr. Mac. Okay. <laughs> Stevie Nicks and Mr. Mac. They had this this relationship, I guess, and I guess that's what inspired the author to do that scene where they're on stage where they were fighting and they couldn't even look at each other, but they kind of looked at each other because they couldn't help it because there was so much chemistry there, but it was just like painful and like the audience could just like feel the chemistry. I guess that's what inspired pretty much this entire book was that 
one live performance. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. And the circumstances under which Stevie Nicks went on to a solo career as just almost as big as Fleetwood Mac as a as a band. That made a lot of it believable. You know, you can you can buy into what's going on there. I know nothing about Fleetwood Mac. I'm sure I've heard some of their songs. You definitely have. Um, yeah. Like yeah. on slide. Yeah. They're trying to get you to buy a car or something probably now because, you know, music from that time gets sampled so much to get into the brains of older people like me and make, <laughs> us, and make us buy stuff. It did make me think of Glee a little where there would be episodes where, you know, two people are forced to sing together, but they're mad at each other. So they're like glaring at each other the whole time. And then by the end of the song, they like make out. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's great drama, yeah. Um, so I got some of those vibes from it, but like more mature than that. I also saw a comparison of the award show with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, where they did the performance from A Star Is Born, and they <laughs> they were on the piano. I guess I didn't see yes. it, but apparently that scene was. You didn't see A Star Is Born? No, I did not. Right I, after I, we get done, go see A Star Is Born. Okay. You didn't. You didn't either. No. Oh gosh. <laughs> I would think that that will almost be a requirement before reading this book. If you haven't seen A Star is Born, <laughs> see A Star is Born, then read this book. And there's, there's a connection there. The story is very different, but there are a lot of parallels that connect to this book also. Yeah, but that performance, I guess, was compared to the scene in here where they were singing solo on the stage, which I thought that was so interesting how... They got to that point, you know, they, Billy was like, well, I hate her, but it just kind of seemed right. And I don't, like, she thought that he asked her to stay on stage and he thought that she just kind of stayed on stage. And then all of a sudden, like, Mm -hmm. boom, we have a, we have a band with Daisy in it. The entire time they were emotionally invested in each other because you don't hate somebody that much unless they're in a position to really harm you emotionally. And that's, that brings in vulnerability and, and affection. They had affection for each other, and they really had affection for their craft. And when they discovered that they had that together, when the manager told them, okay, here's here's the keys to my house, y'all need to get there, figure this song out, they actually realized they had that connection. And that's when they both became vulnerable to each other and capable of that kind of hate. Yeah. I mean, you said earlier she was his evil soulmate, and kind of, because... She got to do all the things that he was so tempted to do, like the drugs and the drinking and the sex with other people. And he just couldn't, but they both were these great writers. So he, I think he saw her as, here's everything you could be, just let go and walk away from everything else you care about. And I think he resented her for it. Yeah, I think I, um, there was a number of points where they envied each other. Yeah. She envied his sobriety. And, you know, there was a point... Where she started saying, you know, why am I doing this? This is routine. This is really hurting me. I want to get out of it. And then she's looking at Billy saying, like him, I want to get out of it like him. And she actually went to him and said, please help me get out of this. And like you said, the whole time Billy saw her as a danger. I can't be around her. She's just temptress. Everything she does is a temptation. Not just her herself as a person, but what she does, where she is you know, who she's doing it with. But then at one point, she even goes and she gets married, which that (laughs) felt so out of place. (laughs) 
Like, that just felt so jarring to me. I understand that it was supposed to show, like, her impulsive nature and, like, the drugs and how that even dug her deeper. And then it kind of showed Billy's jealousy a little bit. But did you feel like that had any place in the story or was that... It kind of made sense because it was the era of, like, free love. And, like, to me, it made sense that she would be the kind of person who'd be like, yeah, let's just get married. <laughs> let's just go for it. Let's also do drugs and get married at the same time. <laughs> um, and of course, anyone that famous, there's going to be people who are trying to take advantage. And so I think he might have represented the kind of the clingers on who who would have come out of the woodwork for any band that big. Well, how it happened and everything made sense, I understand. But the fact that she found this guy and married him, just I mean, it was kind of a, a curveball to me. <laughs> it was hard for me to just take all that and my impression was of the the free love people the free love people really didn't have much use for marriage Mm -hmm. it was like this is an institution it's just a piece of paper the man trying to keep track of us in fact the free love was like okay we're living in the same house but you know love is free i'll bring home whoever you can bring home whoever we can hang out together whatever so i think it was not so much the free love but it really keyed into daisy's instability and her desperate desire to have a real relationship she's thinking that this guy is like going to be a real relationship because if i make him my husband he's a, a, a real relationship type person but um i think it was um i don't know which band member it was it might have been warren or whatever he say first time he laid eyes on me say oh this guy's a con man and yeah i think it was warren 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 has had he's got pretty clear lenses except <laughs> except when he was convinced that karen was having sex with the tech guy oh that was so funny <laughs> he's like yeah i definitely saw them oogling each other and i heard her having sex yeah i think yeah. i think that was the one swing in the miss for warrant but everything extra else, light on her on stage <laughs> but everything else he pretty much had clear glasses for that he could pretty much see but he really didn't invest too much and just kind of just wrote the wave and see where everything was going. Yeah, he didn't seem to get really angry. He just was like, whatever. Yeah. Wasn't he the one that when they came and voted on the song, that he just voted yes? He said, just give me, vote me for yes, and I'm taking my joint and going back outside. I think so. Was yeah. Him? I think it would have been really interesting to listen to the audiobook. I've heard that they have a different voice for every character like an actual different person i know sometimes with audiobooks they'll have one narrator that just talks in funny voices and that really annoys me but i think it would be interesting to hear it's like visiting a public library and you got reading time with fun reading all the all the little bears all the goldilocks and the three bears voices yeah i had i had to do that when i taught preschool and i did not like hearing it come out of my own voice i don't want to hear anyone else do it okay Oh, I want to talk about a quote that Daisy had. She said, I had absolutely no interest in being someone else's muse. I am not a muse. I am the somebody. End of fucking story. That was probably my favorite quote out of the entire book because it really shows who she is. So let's talk about how Daisy Jones kind of came to be. So she came from, sounds like a pretty well-off family, but they just really had no interest in her. I mean, even for one point, she moved in with her friend 
and was gone for weeks and then came back and they're like, oh, did you break the coffee maker or whatever? And she's like, I've been gone. Parents didn't really care. I mean, and then she starts off, she's a groupie essentially for, you know, she's like 15. It reminded me of uh, what is almost famous. Uh And that kind of reminded me of her, her upbringing and somehow she ended up actually becoming that rock star. So do you think that that trajectory is, is realistic that she could go from being a groupie? Because I think that's kind of what groupies want. At least, like, either they want to be famous by association, they want to just be in the presence of rock stars, or they want to be a rock star themselves. But I feel like very few groupies actually get that fame themselves. At least that I know of. Maybe there's more. I thought the trajectory kind of made sense because she would try to fix people's lyrics. She was like, no, this could be better, blah, blah, blah. And then they would just sort of take it and never give her credit. Or they'd be like, oh, she's my muse. But no, she created it. She's an artist. So I think she started out as a groupie, realized this wasn't for her. She she wasn't there just to be with them. She was one of them. And then she made it happen for herself, which I thought was cool because, you know, she took ownership of her creativity instead of letting other people just siphon it off of her. Yeah, I um, I like that quote, too, because it established, it lets you know up front, Daisy, somebody is going to be something. She's going to be somebody significant. She's not just going to be somebody's muse. One quote that I like even better than that one is one from Teddy, because up until then, Daisy is she's she's all talent but no discipline. She's she's got these pieces of songs. She's not working on putting them together, and that's what's keeping her from being you know not a muse, but you know somebody of significance. And mm-hmm. Teddy says to her, "What well, they said, Teddy has the assignment of okay, you got this raw talent, you got to straighten this wild person out." And he tells Daisy, "Someone who insists on the perfect conditions to make art isn't an artist; they're an asshole." <laughs> so, <laughs> so after that, she slams the door in his face, but then thinks about it and says, "You know, he's right." And then she gets to being serious about her craft after that. Yeah. So you know that was that was just part of her arc upwards, and and I think all of that makes it believable. The fact that it's not like overnight somebody heard her singing in the bar and said, oh, you're going to be a star, put a suit on, and she's doing concerts right from then. She was actually putting in some work, not enough work initially, but somebody taught her how to put in the real work. She didn't want to do somebody else's songs. They said, just do the other people's songs, get your voice out there, and she did have to, over some time, establish herself. So I think that rise to stardom, even though... It is incredible. I mean, we're talking about a story. It's fiction. But it is believable the way it was presented. I did really like that part where she realized, oh, wait, I'm not as amazing as I think I am because I haven't finished what I've set out to do. And I think that was very powerful for her to realize. And I think she had several of those moments of realization throughout the book. And then she realizes oh, wait, I need to get myself together. Yeah, I would agree. So I thought probably one of the most powerful moments in the entire book was the scene where kind of chaos is happening everywhere. We're kind of at the climax. And Billy is at the bar and he's trying, he like tastes the drink. He contemplates it. And then this complete stranger that knows nothing about his struggle somehow senses that he's like debating, like, should I drink this? Should I not drink this? And he asks to see pictures of his kids. And then as he's showing him, he moves the glass away and like pays for the drink and all that. And it felt realistic to me that like someone 
could be that kind. And that kind of gave me some hope for humanity, you know, that there are these kind people that notice your struggles. And even something that seems so small in the moment really has such a huge lifelong impact on somebody. Yeah, I call that the angel moment in the book. Because in a lot of stories, um, people will write in a, a character or in the movies, they'll show you a character that has has an influence over the story on a small way, but, you know, really turns the character one way or the other. Like in Love Actually, the guy that plays Mr. Bean, you know, he does that in a couple of spots in that movie. You know, he makes, allows other things to happen that wouldn't have happened without him. And that was the, that was the angel moment there when he's like, you know, like you described, he puts the drink far away from him. He gets him closer to his kids, even though I like the fact that he actually tasted the alcohol. You know, he actually, he actually fell. You know, he wasn't perfect pristine. Yeah. You know, he did fall into, you know, that pit again, but he was actually pulled out by that other character and his, and his own strength to some extent, because he could have ordered another, but he came to his senses. I had assumed that guy was also some sort of addict in recovery and saw him and was like, I see something in you that's in me. I, I need to get that alcohol away from you, famous man. So that's that's what I assumed that guy was, even though we will never know his name. <laughs> <laughs> so while that scene was happening, at the same time, Daisy is basically going to... I don't remember if she was going to her room or to Billy's room or wherever she was. She was just kind of out of it. And then Camilla talks to her, and that's when they have that big conversation. And that is another scene that really just made me dislike Camilla. I get it. I get it. If someone was, like, having that connection with my husband, I would be like, you'll back off. But the way she phrased it made it seem like it was about Daisy. But it, it really wasn't. I mean, I'm glad that Daisy took it as, like, she cares about me and she changed my life. But do you think she actually really cared at all about Daisy and what happened to her? Or she just wanted her to get away from her husband? I, I think it was 80% get away from my husband. 20%, you're a mess and someone has to help you. <laughs> I would vote not 80-20. I think it was more of a 70-30. I'm giving a little bit more credit to Camilla because that was her nature was to, to care about everybody. And she had shown that over and over again, that she actually cared about Daisy. Now, the fact that Daisy was in a position to really destroy her marriage and a lot of happiness in her life, you know, we understand that too. But if you think about it, Camilla could have handled Daisy a lot of different ways. But I think she did it the, the way that was the most merciful and humane and, and best for Daisy in the end. So do you think at the very end, we talked about the email. Do you think that it would be right for Billy and Daisy to get together after all this? Should they bother? Should they just write a song together? I mean, should Ted have gotten together with Robin <laughs> at the end of How I Met Your Mother? Like, ugh, it wouldn't feel right. Just after all that time, I could see them being cordial. But I don't know if they would have the same artistic chemistry as they used to. He he had written other songs for other people. She had been doing her own thing. I don't think they would have clicked as much as they used to. And they're, what, in their late 70s? Yeah. Now? Yeah. Early, probably early 70s. I think it was, that end was disappointing to me because that's where, in my mind, Camilla lost a whole bunch of points because it's almost as if, okay, I'm gone now. You can inject this poison into your veins now. It's all right. Because that's what Daisy was. She was basically a drug to Billy. And I, I get, and I kind of understand, I think the author was trying to go for 
well, he's lost his one soulmate and there's this other soulmate that he should have now that I'm gone. But no, that no, they should never <laughs> they should never be together like that. It's just but wrong. But she's not on drugs anymore. She's that's clean. The, that's the only thing that makes possible for me to consider it but I think that her and Billy together she might drop by the ABC store after a while after being with Billy for a while and, <laughs> and slip back into it I'm sorry I think that they're a danger to each other and she's putting the, those two dangers together again so I have to ask earlier James you said that you thought this was a love story yeah whose love story <laughs> is it to oh, you it's, now when I say I think when I read your texts saying that you were against me on it being a love story, I freaked out at first, but then I said, okay, maybe I have an off definition of love story. Because in my mind, a love story isn't necessarily a romantic story. It's a story in which the, the force and power of love is a huge factor. Mm-hmm. Billy's love for Daisy and Daisy's love for Billy, a man that she can't have. She knows she can't have him, really. Because even if she got him, she would have lost him. Camilla's love for... Billy and for her kids and everything. Billy and and Daisy's love for their craft and music. This love like spilling all over this place. And so that's what makes it a love story for me. To me, a love story has to make me root for somebody to fall in love with each other. And I was not rooting for anyone except for Karen to get paid. Because (laughs) (laughs) I... I was okay with Billy and Camilla, but like I was mad about it a little bit. I didn't think Billy and Daisy were great for each other. I thought that was lust, not really love. Mm-hmm. So I was like, y'all just need to get it out of your systems like at home. Just fantasize and get it out, you know? Obviously, Graham and Karen, not a love story. <laughs> Poor Graham. I did feel bad for him. And then, like, no one else was really in love. So I disagree. <laughs> well, I, I recognize that there's many kinds of love. Okay, there's the romantic love that you're kind of hammering with just that one focus, but a lot of love stories have nothing to do with romantic love, and especially has to do with love that that doesn't work out, that you can't have, like, you know, Graham and Karen, that is a love story. I mean, he loved her, and she did not love him. It was a one-way love story, which was tragic. It was a tragic love story. Sometimes it's love stories between parent and child, that sort of thing. So I just, I guess I just have a broader view of this love story. Yeah, I think talking about it more has leaned me closer to the side of agreeing with you about it being a love story. Because when I finished reading it, I was like, okay, yeah, it is part of the story, but I didn't see it as like the main focus. But after we've been talking about all the different love triangles for like an hour, okay, I guess it is a really big part of the story. And I'll just agree to disagree with you about my my feelings about their marriage and whether that was real love or not. (laughs) Okay, we can be civil. (laughs) it was the love they chose (laughs) they kept telling themselves it was love and that's a type of love (laughs) (laughs) but one last question about Camilla I saw someone say that they thought that she was the main character and you touched on this because of how much she was influencing everyone else so even though she wasn't in the band and she really didn't have as much of a voice in the story as someone like Billy or Daisy. Do you think she really was the main character? No. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No. 
to say that she was the main character is, I mean, they read a different book. That's my opinion. She was, I think she was as major as Ted was. Ted was kind of major, even though he didn't have a whole bunch of, he didn't have any quotes himself, I don't think. You know, he wasn't actually interviewed himself, but he had as much influence, you know, in the story as, as Camilla did. I think they were kind of on a par. But to say that she was the main character, or even one of the top three or four, and that's a stretch. I don't think so. Yeah. As much as I like her. Taylor Jenkins Reid has another very, very popular book, Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Have you heard of that? It's historical fiction, but it's apparently very different from this one. So I'd be curious to see how her writing is different when she has scenes and more of a descriptive thing, because this is a very unique book in the format. So it's hard to judge her writing abilities and how a normally formatted novel would look from her. But I've heard great things about it. I actually think because this book is such a weird format, it says a lot about her writing skills because you can only break the rules if you know how to follow the rules very well because then you'll know when it works to break them. So I think her other stuff has to be great because this worked so well. I mean, we, we even talked about how it flowed so well even when we weren't quite paying attention to who was talking. I would have to agree with that. I don't know if I said it earlier, but when I initially saw the format of the book, I said... Oh my God, we picked the wrong book for me to read. It's going to take me forever to read. It's going to be a drag, but it was really like a magic trick how I really didn't care about the structure after a while. You know, after a few pages, I was just into it like any other story, and that still surprises me. Final thoughts? What would you rate this book? Would you recommend it? I would recommend it to people who really love music and are into bands and would like this type of book about a real band because then they'll, then they'll enjoy this type of uh, different narration. I'd probably rate it four out of five. Really fast read. Sucked me in. It's not generally the type of thing I read and I had to google all of the pills she was taking because I'm that nerdy that I was like, what's that? Oh. <laughs> Some of it was, a lot of it was over my head in terms of, you know, music things and drug things, but still a good read, even if you're a, a nerd like me. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious to find out how long it took the author to research and write this book because she made some reference references to music engineering and um, slangs for musical terms and putting an album together and the drug situation that un unless you were in a band in the early 70s, <laughs> I'm I'm just shocked that she would I mean had all that together cuz there's some stuff that even I had to google to say oh what's she talking about here. So she did a fantastic job with that. I would give it a a four star rating out of 5 and recommend it to anybody who would want to reach an engaging story about life in the 70s because I think it was fairly accurate. I really really enjoyed it. I normally don't like books that go in depth into music because like I said I'm not an auditory person. I can't I can't hear that in my brain. I read A Winter Song which is a fantasy book but it really relied heavily on music and I think it was a violin and that was like horrendous for me to read. I hated it. It talked way too much about music. It went over my head but this felt way more engaging than that. I actually didn't mind all to talk about the nuances of music and even though I didn't really hear it in my brain I still could appreciate it because of the way she wrote it and, and actually before this conversation I think I would have rated it a four out of five but I think this discussion has made me enjoy the book even more and I think I would bump it up to a five out of five. Wow. So. Even with Camilla. Still <laughs> <laughs>
okay. Well, to clear it up, I can <laughs> I can hate a character but still love a book. That's true. Because I didn't hate how she was written. I just hated her. <laughs> I hated her. Okay. <laughs> Our next book is going to be The Rules of Magic by Alice Hoffman. So definitely make sure you read that book so you can join our discussion because we will have spoilers. And thank you both for joining me. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having, having us. us. Thanks for listening to the Judging More Than Just the Cover podcast. I'm Amber Gregg. Join us next month to see what we thought of another best-selling book with strong female main characters. The chat doesn't end here. Let us know your thoughts in the comment area or connect with us on social media. Enjoyed the show? Share the love. Give us a review, like, follow, and a share with your friends. Find more reviews, discussions, and articles related to publishing, writing, and editing on judgingmorethanjustthecover.com. Or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Give us a shout. Until next time, peace out. (laughs) 